0: Children are also dismissed to their classes at this time. You can open with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, this morning our study in Genesis moves us from life inside the garden to life outside the garden. Life inside was described in chapters 2 and 3. And now in chapter 4, we move outside. So from kind of a broad perspective, you could say that we are, uh, we're moving into or we're entering the second stage of human history, right? If this first stage already ended with exile, we're entering the second stage of the old world that in a few chapters is going to end in water in this global flood. Which will then move us into the present world, this third and uh, longest to date stage that's going to end in fire and then we will move into the final stage of the new world and that will be the longest of all won't it the the never-ending stage but uh, in this Toledot of the heavens and the earth um, which is the history of the heavens and the earth cycle one is kind of complete that was chapters two four through the end of chapter three and that was adam and eve being created and then they sinned and then they were mercifully exiled And now cycle two within the same history account uh, begins where Cain is going to be created, he sins, and then he is mercifully exiled. So we're on the same but second cycle. Uh, Before we read chapter four this morning, I just want to remind you of two kind of key elements from chapter three that we need to take with us into chapter four. The first would be... I would encourage you to remember the great strife between the serpent and Eve's seed that was prophesied by God in his oracle against Satan. Uh, This original declaration of good versus evil That we see traced throughout human history And ultimately culminating in Christ Who brings destruction to this evil rebellion So remember that as we move into it And then secondly, remember the mercy and the hope That God has promised to Adam and Eve Particularly by guaranteeing life And by clothing them In the midst of all of this darkness And the consequence of sin We've observed the past two weeks that God maintains his sovereignty and he offers hope in this darkness. So even when sin kind of dashes the goodness of creation on the rocks, God keeps his steady hand on the wheel of human history. And what we see as we move into chapter 4 is that the merciful hope, that second part we just discussed, immediately takes incredible meaning to Adam and Eve, as the attention shifts from them to their children. So the hope is already taking place. Our children are being born. Um, And immediately, so immediately, I mean, God opens the the womb of the mother of all living, living and Cain is born. But running parallel to that is the same idea that we spoke of first, that there's going to be a conflict between good and evil. And Satan is going to waste no time in striking the heel of Eve's seed. The narrative even continues to get darker than chapter 3. As we observe the descent of the human experience into the dungeon of sin. Sin so deeply affects the human condition that even the seed of Eve are born allegiant to the serpent. So it's from her womb that Satan enlists his own seed. To send on missions to crush the heel of goodness, and once Moses unveils that reality—that's that's that's what we're talking about this morning. The second half of chapter four that we'll look at next week—we'll read today—it really opens the floodgates to that ravaging effect of evil upon humanity, of entire family lines of of arrogance and of unbelief. follow. I mean, we have murder, uh, murderous, polygamous, violent, unrepentant people who express colossal volumes of lust and who persistently and exclusively pursue that practice of evil. And yet we're going to see through that time and time again that neither the sin of an individual like Cain or Lamech or Ham, these other people we'll meet soon, or the sins of groups like the sons of God and the daughters of men or the whole earth or the builders of mighty, mighty cities. No measure of the presence or practice of sin can eclipse the mercy and sovereignty of God. And that is most certainly true in the story of Cain this morning. There's a lot of different literary structure things going on here, too many really to discuss. I don't have my pen with me to sort of draw this out. But as we read this, just observe, this is one aspect of literary structure. We alternate in who's mentioned. So it starts with Cain's birth, moves to Abel, then winds around this way, just kind of in a, and it keeps you turning of who he's mentioning. So notice that as we read chapter 4 this morning. Genesis chapter four, beginning in verse one. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought uh, of the first fruit of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted or lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahuahel, and Mahuahel begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the second was Zillah, and Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Then Lamech said this to his wives. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, for God had appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh, Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this holy text. We thank you for your word. That you have inspired it. You have exhaled it, breathed it out. We thank you that it has been preserved and recorded for our blessing, and for our benefit, for our instruction. That we may learn righteousness. We pray that as we open it this morning, we would be serious about this task we'd be careful and my words would be cautious confident true that the ears of your people would be opened that all of the ables here this morning would hear your word and be drawn with affection to jesus christ and that all of the canes would be humbled brought to repentance and faith in jesus christ through the rebirth of your spirit it's in jesus name that we pray these things amen So, the first thing that we see in this account is that the mercy of God is realized. The scene opens with the birth of this, these two boys, Cain and Abel. And the story completely revolves around the relationship between these two brothers. Now, Cain is the main character in the story, and Abel is the secondary ca- character. Abel is always mentioned in reference to Cain. Abel's just called his brother, right? The brother of the main character from a narrative perspective. Oftentimes, uh, the names of people carry significant meaning throughout Hebrew literature. Uh, And in this case, it's no different. Many times, the name will kind of be a play on something else that occurs as a theme in the story or perhaps used to remember a significant event or an answer to prayer. Um, And other times, the name is used because of the way it looks, like the way the Hebrew characters look or the way that it sounds. And that seems to be the case this morning. Uh, Cain's name, Cayenne, uh, is related by sound to the verb in verse 1 that she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired, I have caniti, I have brought forth or created a son. So that seems to be the relationship. What Eve is saying is that God is the creator of Adam and of me, he made us. And now with the help of the creator Yahweh, I have made the second man. I've created. And as Adam was brought forth by the Adamah, so the Ish, the man, is now brought forth by the Isha, the woman. So Eve acknowledges God's blessing in her uh, conception and delivery, and she rejoices here um, in his provision now abel's name is interesting because abel is the hebrew word hevel um, or hebel in this case you might say it um, which is a hebrew onomatopoeia right a word that uh means something similar to the way that it sounds and this is the hebrew onomatopoeia for breath so hevel hevel is just the, the breathing sound um, And there's no written play on the word in this text, so we might maybe be a little bit cautious in assigning it meaning, particularly because Abel is the second born and the less significant character here. Uh, But it does seem to allude to the baffling brevity of Abel's life, that his breath was very quickly and unjustly cut short. He had fewer breaths. He had a shorter life span. Uh, then it's quite significant as well, what they're doing, their occupation. We have a herder and a tiller. Both g- boys grow to embrace significant aspects of the responsibility that was given to their father, Adam. The firstborn carries on, probably the, at least literally the primary uh, responsibility of tilling, right? We had a man who was created to go to the garden to till, and then uh, even the ground was cursed, and it's going to be more difficult to till, and then he was sent from the garden to till the ground, and so now the firstborn is a tiller. It seems quite significant that he's carrying on the work of his father. But so is Abel, isn't he? Abel is also carrying on the, the dominion, that he's, as Adam named the animals and was given rule over them, so now Abel carries on the dominion aspect Uh, or they sort of work together in carrying on the dominion aspect of their father's responsibility. And as far as we know in the story, I mean, life looks great. I mean, it's difficult, you know, but God has been merciful to them. Uh, He still communes with them. He's clothed them, and he's provided them with two boys to carry on the work of of tilling and of of ruling, shepherding. And then some time passes. That's verse 3. In the process of time... It came to pass Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground Abel brings an offering of the flock and then the Lord respects Abel's rejects Cain and Cain is angry So that phrase after some time has passed from a narrative perspective that leaves the door wide open for many things to have happened since the last time I mean Adam or Cain and Abel were born right now they're men they're young men at least they're growing they're working they have occupations they're skilled in their task there's probably been countless conversations between Adam and Eve parents, children the difficulty of being married to a sinner and the reality of pain and childbearing has all been sort of manifested these boys are growing into young men and there's lots of interaction even between not just between the family but also significantly between the family and their creator God seems to have Maybe not in the same way as he was in Eden, but he's still present with them. He's still interacting with them. He's still calling them to certain things and even walking with them. And so the scene sort of opens with the essential context um, of what's going to follow. It sets the stage for the story. Moses is really just advancing to the relevant details. So here we find Cain and Abel in a worship setting. They're bringing offerings to the Lord. From what Moses has recorded, what's written, we don't know anything about the expectations that may have been set between God and man concerning post-fall worship. We don't know really what that's supposed to look like. He maintains interaction with them, and that appears. This, this whole setting seems to be something that's following his directive. It's not as though Adam and Eve were like, well, maybe this sounds like a good idea. Give him some of your fruit, or give him some of your sheep. You know, it's it's probably something that they are following um, God's direction, but it's just, and rather than spontaneous, but um, but we don't really have much information. However, the entire offering scenario looks a lot like. Whispers of the law that's eventually detailed by God at and following Sinai, doesn't it? If we were to kind of look back at the scene through the lens of Sinai, then several things may take shape um, because after the establishment of this covenant, the promise, the relationship between God and his people, there's a series of sacrifices and festivals and feasts that God ordains, which these look a little bit like. So as an example, Exodus twenty-two sixteen, which is the feast of harvest and the feast of ingathering says of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field of the fruit of your labor, you're supposed to dedicate the first fruits of your fruit of your food to God. So that sounds a lot like what Cain is doing, doesn't it? Exodus thirteen two, the consecration of the firstborn where God says that whatever is the first to open the womb among the peoples of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And it seems like that may be, you know, that this is a foreshadowing of that. That Abel is offering the first fruits of his flock. Now, the word used for offering uh, is minha, and it doesn't, uh, well, it often refers to like a gift. Okay, so like, um, maybe something given to a brother, something given to a king, something given to your father, perhaps something given to the man uh, or the father of the woman that you'd like to marry, uh, or perhaps something like between brothers um, Jacob and Esau to, to maintain peace, um, a lot of things like that, or to express thanksgiving. You may generously give a gift. That's the normal usage of this offering. It is, however, used in the law to describe the grain offerings So, while it could be a reference to a blood sacrifice, that doesn't seem to be the theme here. They seem to be bringing to God offerings, gifts of thanksgiving, the first fruits of their food and of, well, their food, I guess, in two directions, the food from the ground, and then the animals, the livestock. So, if that's the case then why is it that Cain's offering is rejected? If he's just bringing his fruit of the ground and Abel is bringing the first fruits of his work, then why is Cain's offering rejected? Now, the answer that I kind of remember hearing as a child or perhaps even assumed as a child is that Cain didn't bring a blood sacrifice, that Abel brought a lamb. And Cain should have brought a lamb. He could have resolved the problem by going to his brother and saying, Hey, bro, can I have one of those? Because we got to bring this to God. But while the two offerings kind of make an interesting parallel to chapter one, right? The insufficient leaf clothes of Adam and Eve, and then the sufficient animal skin clothes, that, that could be an interesting parallel. But it never indicates that the contrast between fruit and flesh is the problem. And there, as we already mentioned, there are many grain and food offerings in the Old Testament law, which was to follow, but that's not an unusual thing for God to receive. Instead, I think when we compile several comments made here and then others throughout Scripture, I believe a solid case can be made that Cain's sacrifice, his offering was rejected because of his unbelief, because of his faithlessness, perhaps initially demonstrated by the quality of offering presented, not as the main point, but as a symptom of his heart. So in our text, Moses may hint at the symptom by contrasting the goodness or the quality of the offerings that's been made. Cain, it says, um, he brings an offering of the fruit of the ground, right? So Cain brings fruit, plain and simple. That's all that's said about it. But then Moses seems to intentionally state that Abel's sacrifice, his offering, is the best, is the fattest, is the first fruit. And he goes, like, not at great lengths, but he makes a significant distinction between the two. Abel's is fattest, first, it's a good offering. Abel's is fruit. He could say the first fruits and the best food, but he doesn't. That may be significant. Uh, And it seems to allude then to the contrast of Abel and Cain's character of their heart that's being manifested in this offering. And the New Testament does seem to confirm that. So if you looked at Hebrews chapter 11, and Hebrews brings up Abel multiple times in in really interesting and beautiful ways. But Hebrews 11.4 begins clarifying the scene by commending Abel's faith as the reason that his offering was better. So Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, still keeping the contrast, through which... He, Adam, or Abel, was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So the contrast between the brothers in Hebrews 11 seems pretty clear. The Abel sacrifice is better because Abel is a man filled with faith. And it was through those faith-filled offerings that he was commended by God as a righteous man. And that's a pretty explicit gulf between the two of them. If their sacrifice is sourced, uh, from, from the heart from which their sacrifice is sourced is a matter of faith. And that seems to be the distinction. So the equal opposite of Hebrews 11.4, while it's not the text, it could read something like this. By unbelief... Cain offered to God a less acceptable sacrifice than Abel through which Cain was identified as unrighteous. God identified him by rejecting his gifts. Seems to be like the equal opposite doesn't it? And then 1 John chapter 3 also continues to unveil this and I hope to have time to read through much of 1 John 3 at the end by way of application but it says 1 John 3 12 we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So the two key phrases relevant to at least this moment in the sermon is John's identification of Cain as an offspring of the evil one. He is the seed of the serpent. And then Cain's Cain's motivation for murder being the difference of the nature's That Cain and Abel's deeds demonstrated. So Cain's deeds. He's not talking about the murder there. He's talking about what happened before. His offering was evil. Which unveiled an evil unbelieving heart. And Abel's deeds were righteous. Which unveiled a righteous believing heart. And we know from scripture. Particularly in the prophets. That God has no interest in worship from people with unchanged hearts. He cares nothing for it. He finds it to be a stench in his nostrils. He spews it from his mouth. Sacrifice is not a substitute for or a pathway toward righteousness. Even if Cain had brought the best and brightest of his fruits, God would have rejected his evil offering because of the evil allegiances of his heart. Cain has a nature problem. He's the son of the serpent. So, once this all takes place, the response at the end of chapter 5 is quite clear. I mean, we could ask what does the son of the serpent do when he's rejected by God? Well, he rages. That's what he does, and Cain is very angry, and his face or his countenance falls. Cain's response continues, right, to expose just the, the depth of depravity and the strength of his evil allegiances. This is no, like, he's discouraged, he's bummed out, or he's even, like, beginning a depressive spiral because God just doesn't like him anymore, or something like that. No, he is, he is livid. He is angry. He uh, is burning With rage. You know, sometimes when you see someone's face, their countenance, the whole story is told, isn't it? You don't have to ask any questions. You know from that look exactly what's going on in their lives. Like, Think Anakin Skywalker, right? And his descent into Darth Vader. Spoiler. I see like he's moving that way. And his face is just dark. It is angry. Or if you don't know that reference, then you know, your two-year-old, your three-year-old, when you say no, like that, oh, like we're, it's about to get real here, and they're angry, they're mad, they don't want this to be the way that it is. So principally, how one reacts to seeing oneself passed over by God, and another blessed by God, that's revealing, that exposes the heart, And Cain reacts as the self-righteous seed of the serpent that he is. And so the Lord, he moves toward him. This is the first of two different uh, series of interrogation. So God initially gives interrogation and some advice or warning. And then he gives interrogation and a curse. So this first time, God moves toward him. Cain's visible, angry scowl. It prompts God's questioning. And as we discussed in God's approach to Adam and Eve, I think we could argue once again pretty strongly that God's approach is gentle. It lacks an accusatory tone. He's there to seek information, seek a response, seek interaction with Cain. It might not be a bad pattern for us to consider when approaching each other or our children as well. But this concept of acceptance... So, Cain, er, so, so the Lord says, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And that word seems to describe the very lifting up, the very exaltation of Cain's fallen face. His angry face will be changed. It will be made new. It will be lifted up. Do well and you will be exalted, Cain. Cain, bring an offering. Bring an offering from a pure heart. Bring an offering from a faith-filled, righteous heart. Your faith will rise. Your face will rise. Continue in your evil, sinister activity. And you provide sin an opportunity to destroy you. If you do not do well, then sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So we have the personification of sin here as like this large cat or this large creature stalking its prey and it waits quietly anticipating Cain's angry advance through the door, through this portal into continued evil. Have you ever waited around the corner right, to surprise someone or scare someone? Some of you are too good for that. <laughs> that's probably nice of you but for those of you that have you know that everything depends upon the person walking around the corner or you could lie there for forever you could wait for forever but unless they come down the hallway unless they turn the corner you, it doesn't matter And that's part of the imagery that's being portrayed here. Sin is waiting. Sin is anticipating. It's ready to pounce upon Cain. But Cain needs to pursue his evil. He needs to persist in his evil. And then sin will consume him. He has this warning, this opportunity to turn, to do something different. To be like his righteous brother. To offer a better sacrifice. So the conflict between good and evil predicted... In the curse against Satan has begun. Cain, will you do good? Will you rule? Will you conquer evil? Will you fight as one of the seed of your mother? Or well in so doing, sin is mastered, right? But if you walk away, if you walk away from good, as your face looks to predict then sin is going to overwhelm you and you will participate as a seed of the serpent in the battle against good. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose against Abel his brother and killed him. he doesn't want mastery over sin. He doesn't want righteousness. He has no interest in it. He has no interest in faith. He wants to be devoured. Like a father perhaps understanding the immaturity and disposition of his son might warn him about like the dangers of of alcohol at a party or something like this. And as soon as this wise boring wisdom lecture is over the son determinedly dismisses all of the words of his father and proceeds to the party to get blackout drunk. He cares nothing for God's words. He doesn't want them. He knew exactly what he wanted. So Cain walks away from the the warning of Yahweh and goes to talk with Abel. Now you notice the difference between Cain and his mother in their sins, don't you? You can see the difference between Cain and Eve. Where Eve was approached by the serpent who deceived her. She was approached in conversation and he moved her and she almost like woke up in sin. She was deceived toward her sin. Cain is doing the precise opposite. He takes the place of the serpent, doesn't he? He moves with deception in his heart. He moves with evil intent to lure Abel into the field and there he murders him. He's become the Satan image. Cain wouldn't be talked out of his sin, not even by God himself. And so we've moved from humanity being the deceived to being the deceivers. And so now with the blood of Abel being eaten by the ground, the Lord approaches Cain again, again with questioning, again with gentility, with kindness, with mercy. He says, where is Abel, your brother? And there's this interaction between them. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The second distinction between Cain and Eve appears in their response to God when he comes near after their sin. So God had arrived to Eve and inquired, well, initially to Adam. Adam, where are you? And now Abel, where are you? Or Cain, where is Abel? And when God asked Eve the question, she responded with a poor explanation of why she had done what she had done. But then she also responded with repentance or acknowledgement that she was a sinner. When God asked Cain a similar question, he responds with a direct lie and with a sarcastic rhetorical question. Very different in their natures. Very different, aren't they? So Cain lies to the face of God, thinking apparently that he can deceive him or that God wouldn't know. I don't know, or he just doesn't even care because he knows where his allegiances lie. And then his response, I mean, he expected the rhetorical answer to the question, am I my brother's keeper to be No, well, of course not. I'm not, where's my brother? I don't know. I don't care. Am I supposed to babysit him? But God's response indicates that the answer is actually the opposite. That the answer is yes, you are your brother's keeper. Your brother's blood cries out against you. You have risen against a fellow image bearer. To destroy him. And in a broad sense, my morality that I stamped into your conscience assumes an unstated covenant between you and all of humanity. The Imago Dei is in one way a covenant of keeping that we won't dishonor. We won't endanger. We won't undo one another. Yes, Cain, the brother that I gave you should have been kept by you from any exploitation by you i didn't want you to babysit him i wanted you not to kill him that would have been keeping his brother and so cain responds to that just with as if his responsibility were far too great like i had to keep him Like a failing father, you know, who throws up his hands and just says, Well, I'm sorry. I didn't know that I had to give my children the whole world. When all that's really being asked is if he would be present and kind. It's not that much. You see, if a family or a country or a church is to survive, then the people must be committed to each other's well-being. You know, I don't have time to invest in and love all of these people. Well, take heart, because keeping one another has much more to do with what you refrain from doing negatively even than the actions that you take positively and that may be a bit of a paradigm shift but it's a good one it's a very helpful one it's a, it relieves a lot of some of the the guilt that weighs upon us for not knowing and loving and being best friends with everybody that's not really what this is talking about if we look forward in this case back from our perspective to the 10 commandments the sort of quintessential guidelines for life in the covenant community they demonstrate this reality. Right 6 of the 10 commandments refer to human interaction and how we should keep one another. And of those 6, 5 of them are negative. 5 of them are saying, "Well, just don't do this. Don't kill each other. Don't cheat on each other. Don't steal from each other. Don't lie about each other and don't covet each other or your stuff." That's what keeping each other means. That is our allegiance, our human allegiance first and foremost. And certainly our covenant church family allegiance, this brotherhood that we have formed. And so as we would church, we would do well to remember that these principles, we make make obedience to be far more complicated and impossible than it is when at least foundationally restraint is love. We're a collective body, a gathered people, united in Christ. We are responsible to and for each other, particularly in our covenant relationship. The New Testament speaks of us in relationship to each other, doesn't often speak of us as individuals. We are a part of a collective whole, even using metaphors like body and like building to describe those realities. But when was the last time that your Toe complimented your shoulder. It didn't. They don't really interact even. I'm not saying don't interact, but it doesn't mean that again, you're best friends with everyone and potentially even best friends with anyone. I know that sounds crazy. Those are good things I think I think those concepts are commendable, but I just think we've made a mistake. We know we've made a mistake when we equate those things to love. God includes in his response to Cain a pretty chilling statement about his brother's blood. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I've heard it said that the most important word in this Hebrew sentence is Ali or to me. That is the direction that the innocent blood of Abel cries. It cries Godward, not to mom and dad. Not to his murdering brother, but to God. That's where his blood cries. And there's tremendous substance found there, that the blood cries out. In this entire narrative, Moses hasn't recorded a single word from Abel. He never said anything. And that finds its significance right here. Because even in his death, Abel's blood has a voice. It cries out to God concerning the injustice that he has experienced. It's like God's moving to Cain... And questioning him is a response to first the blood of Abel crying out to God. So Cain cannot hide his deed. Social injustice is exposed and God deals with it. So in those moments when there's no one there to catch your tears, even in those moments where you've observed someone experience injustice to the point of death, their blood cries out. And that's helpful. That's encouraging. Then God moves to a curse, verse 11. So now you are cursed. And here we have the third curse finally revealed. Um, God had blessed the animal's humanity in the seventh day in chapters 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. And then chapter 2, 4 through the end of chapter 4, we have three curses. The serpent, the ground, and now finally Cain. Cain's curse highlights the seriousness of tampering with life. Something that without specific direction from God, humanity has no right to take. God reserves that right for himself. And so now the ground that previously was cursed to reluctantly provide sustenance for humanity turns on Cain because it had to drink Abel's innocent blood. It will no longer yield its strength to Cain. It will no longer yield fruit to the evil master Tiller. And Cain will be sent out as a wanderer, as a fugitive. Here is an example the premier example the first example that you or second i suppose that you can choose your sin but you cannot choose your consequences and whether reasonable or not to cain that hits cain close to the things that he loves he loves himself he loves the ground And like a child, when their punishment is revealed, Cain's reaction is magnificent to behold. It is shocking. It reveals once again that his greatest desires are for himself. He has no no, uh, response of uh, remorse. He has only this tantrum inspired by his self-pity and his resentment. It is unbearable. I cannot bear it. To be driven away from the presence of my family, from relationship with them, and from the Lord of blessings. How could I leave your face? And just a moment ago, he had murdered his family. And he had rejected the clear warning of God whose face he so loved. He wanted nothing to do with these people. And yet it's too great because it hurt him. It hit him where he was vulnerable. Cain also understood the character of God as it related to the life that he had just taken. He knew that he deserved to die. And so when he considers being a fugitive, leaving, and when he considers, I mean, he's never seen anyone die but his brother. And I don't even know that he knows about death. And certainly during this period of time, people are living like nearly a thousand years. That's a lot of years for mom and dad and Seth and all your brothers and sisters to come and find you and to take vengeance because of what you did. And he's terrified of that because he knows that he deserves it. And so he throws this tantrum. It foreshadows God's words to Noah in the new world, which is our present world, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man. But God responds to Cain's tantrum with a, I think, correct verse rather than therefore is like, well, you know, you're right. So I'm going to be merciful to you. And he offers a word of correction. This therefore is actually, no, Cain. No, they're not going to kill you. What's going to happen is exactly what I just said. What I just said is that the ground will not produce for you. And you will be a fugitive. That's what's going to happen. And as an evidence of that, here is a merciful mark. And he marks Cain. We don't know what that looks like or what that was. But it was a mark that signified to other people. Don't mess with him. Don't kill him. This punishment is not more than you can bear, and no one's going to take your life. Vengeance is my business. The punishment of banishment is just, and it's bearable, and it stands. So God gives Cain the merciful mark. Why didn't he kill him? Why didn't he take Cain's life right then, right there? He just shed the innocent blood of his brother. From a justice perspective, he should have. That's what would have been right. Life and death, though, we must remember, are God's prerogatives. He shares that right with no one. Throughout the entirety of this Toledo, and certainly it's just the beginning of so much more, the answer to the question, what became of the heavens and the earth? It resounds with this answer. Well, sin became of them and mercy became of them. That's what became of the heavens and the earth. And so we've kind of come full circle. With the Lord. In verse 1. Eve brought forth a son. She brought forth a son from the Lord. And now verse 16. He moves out from the presence of the Lord. In verse 2. Cain was a tiller of the ground. And now we know that the ground. Has turned on him in his curse. So. Two primary points of application. One is a Christological point, and then if we can, I'm probably going to take another five minutes here, but one, then I'd like to move just to read 1 John 3. It's a point of application about the contrast between these two seeds. So beautifully, the blood of Abel speaks to us from Hebrews as well. The blood of Abel, it was the best and the dearest, it was the most innocent. It was the blood of a faithful man. And Yet, it never brings salvation to the presence of God's people. Instead, what does Abel's blood do? It actually increases the burden of the curse, doesn't it? It cries out accusation. It cries out against Cain. That's what Abel's blood does. But the blood of Christ makes adequate, more than adequate, reparations for sin. It cries out better things than Abel's blood could ever cry out. It cries out, rather than, he killed me, he killed me, that was unjust, he's unrighteous, it now cries out, I've borne your sin, I've borne your sin, come to me. Their bloods speak, shout, cry, different things. That's Hebrews twelve, eighteen through 24, if you'd like to write it down, I encourage you to read it later. It just says that Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The second point will be in first John chapter three. And that's that the issue of seeds is clearly revealed, right? Cain is a representative of the world. He is a representative of the seed of Satan, the human forefather of the unrighteous line. He drew first blood in the battle between good and evil seeds. The seed, of, the seed of the serpent. Has as demonstrated in Cain. Hearts that hate the righteous. And God's approval of them. Ears that refuse the ear. Or the, to hear God's words of warning. They have hands that shed innocent blood. They have tongues that lie. That deny responsibility and protest judgment. They have feet that walk away from the mercy of God. Abel. Is the equal opposite Image. And we see that at the end of chapter four. We'll look at that next week. But Seth is the replacement of Abel, who is this seed of the woman, the righteous line. And the characteristics of him, not explicitly stated, but he has a heart that loves the righteousness of God. He has ears that listen to the words of God. He has hands that provide life that defend life rather than shedding innocent blood. He has a tongue that speaks truth, that accepts responsibility and doesn't protest correction. He has feet that walk in the way of God's mercy. That's the difference between the two sons. As we've seen in every individual, you are either one or the other. And that's what 1 John 3 describes. So we're going to close by reading this. It speaks a lot of application in and of itself. We're going to start in verse 4 and read through the end of the chapter. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that He, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever, uh, whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous and he who sins is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning for this purpose the son of god was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil can't you hear this good and verse evil whoever has been born of god does not know sin or he does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of god in this the children of god and the children of the devil are manifest they are exposed Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. It's a good point of application for us. To the Abels. don't be surprised that the Cains hate you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but let us love in word or in in deed and in truth. By this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we, re- we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment. That we should believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us.